0: FAIR Story Curriculum, Women and the Right to Vote, Undermining Merit in STEM, and What Censorship Looks Like on College Campuses. Welcome to FAIR News Weekly. To read all of the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit this podcast's episode description. This week, we have released the 10th video in our fair story curriculum, Women and the Right to Vote, which traces the history and progress of women's pursuit of equal voting rights. To provide equality to all people, regardless of their sex, would require political and legal change. But that was limited by another right women were not granted, the right to vote. Women were not only group restricted from voting in the early days of the United States, In the 13 colonies, voting was restricted to European men who held a certain amount of property and land. Though much progress has been made when voting restrictions based on race, color, or previous condition of servitude were lifted, women were still not granted the right to vote through all that progress. The right to vote came slowly and incrementally for women, with them only receiving the full right to vote in all 50 states in 1920, when the 19th Amendment to the Constitution became law. FAIR's K-12 Pro-Human Learning Standards aims to inform and guide curricula toward a fair and accurate view of our nation's history. Our standards emphasize constructive principles that inspire optimism for the American future based on humanity, diversity, understanding, and fairness. This week, FAIR investigative journalist Grayson Slover reported on a March 23, 2020 webinar by the nonprofit group Embrace Race, titled Building Meaningful, Healthy Relationships Among Kids of Color. The organization was founded by Melissa Garreau and Andrew Grant Thomas, a couple who created the organization to meet the challenges faced by those raising children in a world where race matters. Garrow and Grant Thomas interviewed three members of Families of Color Seattle FOCS, a nonprofit based in Seattle, Washington, that focuses mainly on increasing parenting skills and providing a space to discuss identity and race for families of color. During the webinar, parents were told the importance of parents connecting with other parents of the same skin color or ethnicity, and that they should encourage their children to think the same way. Do you value the civil rights and liberties of all individuals, regardless of their skin color, ancestry, or group identity? Are you interested in supporting and learning more about FAIR's nonpartisan and pro-human mission, and how FAIR promotes fairness, understanding, and our common humanity? Then join us this summer as a FAIR intern. $2,000 stipend provided. Applications are due on April 8, 2022. We want our FAIR Substack to be the go-to publication for people interested in sharing and reading diverse perspectives on culture and civil rights. Whether you're a seasoned author or an amateur writer with a story that can contribute to our mission of promoting fairness, understanding, and humanity, we would love to receive your stories, opinions, investigations, reviews, interviews, and more. Application info in the description below. Every Tuesday, the first four Tuesdays of the month, from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern, Fair Advisor Xander Kegg will be hosting a series of free wellness webinars for Fair members. Registration info in the description. On April 14th at 8 p.m. CST, Fair and Medicine will be hosting an open house event for medical professionals interested in learning about and contributing to Fair's mission to promote a common medical culture based on critical thinking and the pursuit of excellence in all medical endeavors. Registration info in the description. This week on The Fair Substack, we published an essay by Indian-American Nandini Patwarda, who came to America as an immigrant in the early 1980s after being inspired by America's ingenuity, generosity, and commitment to equal opportunity and non-discrimination. But Patwarda has recently become concerned with a recent cultural shift that appears to be undermining merit in STEM fields. She says, We need to recognize excellence, whether achieved through natural talent or through perseverance, Not only as a reward for what a person is or has mastered, but as an investment in what a person can yet become. Invent or create. As Thomas Edison said, genius is 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. Petwarda believes that successful societies need to reward merit and not sidetrack those who have proven that they have what it takes. Instead of spending so much time and energy on policies focusing on rationing out jobs on the basis of skin color, she asks us to imagine those very energies being deployed for skills development, and to craft solutions that prioritize the flourishing of all Americans. (music) Essayist Kevin Mims wrote about the recent revisions to the classic 1957 Broadway musical The Music Man after being revived on Broadway to make it more politically correct. The content purported to be offensive was a song called "Shapoopy," which is a slang term referring to a sweetheart who's hard to get. According to a reviewer named Helen Shaw, the term had overtones of sexual assault. Mims laments these modern revisions artists' works of art. He says, If Wilson had filled his shows with racial slurs that, though historically accurate, made it hard to listen to these days, some bolderization of the work might be understandable. But Wilson did nothing of the kind. If Wilson's original version of The Music Man can't pass muster with today's wokest playgoers, what play written prior to yesterday afternoon possibly could? This week, we are spotlighting experimental psychologist and fair advisor Steven Pinker on our Substack. Pinker is no stranger to controversy, which is what one can increasingly expect when speaking truths that may not align with what is deemed politically correct. Recently, Pinker has been concerned with a growing cultural intolerance of free speech and academic freedom, which he believes may imperil the advancement of our species. He says that moves to punish, censor, cancel, and demonize heterodox opinions are in danger of disabling the only means our species has to approach truth, namely, to broach ideas and evaluate their logical coherence and empirical warrant. Pinker hopes that Fair's pro-human movement will embolden those who wish to resist the more pernicious aspects of cancel culture, but are worried that they will be alone in their opposition. For The New York Times, Margaret Rankel wrote about one of the formative artistic experiences of her life when she watched the award-winning film A Man for All Seasons. Sir Thomas More's words, when a man takes an oath, he's holding his own self in his hands, like water, and if he opens his fingers, then he needn't hope to find himself again, resounded deeply with her. Though Rankle describes More as a genius, she is well aware that More was a complex and complicated human being who did many things we would describe as immoral today. But given that we are all imperfect, we should not discard valid life lessons due to a figure's imperfections. She says, But part of living comfortably in a complicated world means recognizing the complexity of human beings, their inscrutability, their ever-changing priorities, above all, their capacity for self-contradiction. Much as we might prefer it to be otherwise, it is possible for a person to do unforgivable things and also things that are remarkably beautiful and good. We do human wisdom a great disservice when we expect it to be perfectly embodied in a flawed human being. This week, the Wall Street Journal published the wide-ranging opinions of five college students about whether self-censorship is taking over our universities. One student, Thomas Wolfson at University of Maryland, described a campus culture where students are afraid to share their opinions because they're scared their peers may lash out at them. But according to Wolfson, the main problem is the school administrators, who often shield students from exposure to differing points of view. Another student, Carolyn Breckel at Yale University, disagrees, saying that instead of censorship, what students voicing their unpopular opinions may be experiencing is simply other classmates exercising their free speech in disagreement. She says that feeling a sense of embarrassment if my point is ill-received is not censorship since no one is preventing me from voicing that opinion. For the Globe and Mail, former sex researcher Deborah Soh wrote about the issues with widespread self-censorship on college campuses, as was revealed in a recent campus survey by the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. The survey showed that approximately four in five students report self-censoring at least some of the time, and about one in five report self-censoring often. According to so, We rightfully frown upon discriminating against people based on their characteristics like race, sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity, yet it remains socially acceptable to exclude and demonize people for their political beliefs. This is not an issue confined to the loony fringes of the academic world, but something that affects everyday people in the workplace as well. Ultimately, So is worried that colleges are preventing some of the most interesting and inspiring conversations that can arise from cordial disagreement, And not only that, but being shielded from such conversations causes them to miss vital opportunities to refine their critical thinking skills and better understand the world we live in. For Barry Weiss's substack Common Sense, journalist Aaron Seberium wrote about the troubling influence of intolerant social justice activism on America's legal system. Whereas it was once the public who had admonished lawyers for representing people they deemed morally repugnant, this admonishment is now coming increasingly from other lawyers. Now, he says, the politicization and tribalism of campus life have crowded out old-fashioned expectations about justice and neutrality. The imperatives of race, gender, and identity are more important to more and more law students than due process, the presumption of innocence, and all the norms and values at the foundation of what we think of as the rule of law. In response to this trend, Andrew Copelman, Northwestern University scholar of institutional law, said People will ask, How can you represent someone who's guilty? The answer? is that a society where accused people don't get a defense, as a matter of course, is a society you don't want to live in. It's a totalitarian nightmare. An Observer editorial in The Guardian discussed the Cass Review's interim report on gender identity services for children and adolescents finds that children with gender issues are ill-served by adults who shut down debate. In part, the review calls for a fundamentally different service model for children that is more in line with other pediatric provision. This includes providing support for any other clinical presentations that they might have. The review calls into question current gender affirmation models in favor of an approach that explores all potential underlying factors that may be contributing to or the root cause of feelings of dysphoria. Finally, if you liked this podcast, subscribe, share with a friend and leave us a rating and review. Make sure to check out our newsletter and weekly roundup to read more into any of this week's stories or visit the episode description. Donations are always welcome at fairforall.org donate.